From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. My favorite fun fact about the Society of Jesus is that there are more than 30 craters on the moon named for Jesuits. Feel free to use this nugget to dazzle companions at your next gathering if you've forgotten how to do small talk over the past year. I love this fact not only for its cocktail party potential, but because it's a reminder that faith and science are not the adversaries so many people make them out to be. Since the beginning of the Society of Jesus almost 500 years ago, Jesuits have looked to the heavens to learn more about the wonders of our universe. That's how they got their name on the moon. And Jesuits continue this work today, perhaps most notably by running and staffing the Vatican Observatory in Rome. The director of the observatory is an American Jesuit named Brother Guy Consolmagno, and he's my guest today. Brother Guy and I chatted recently on the occasion of the launch of the brand new Vatican Observatory website and podcast. We also talked about Brother Guy's vocation story, why science and faith aren't enemies, why Brother Guy is still amazed by the universe after decades of work and study, why it's important to keep exploring space, and more. It was one of my very favorite conversations ever on this show, and you're in for a treat. Remember to subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts, and thanks for joining us. Brother Guy Consolmagno, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. How are you doing? It's great, and it's a delight to be here. So... Uh, for folks who might not be familiar, you lead the, the Vatican Observatory. Um, I know sometimes when I talk about this, people are surprised to hear the Vatican has an observatory uh, at all. Uh, well, that's the reason we exist, to surprise people. <laughs> uh, well, well, that's good then. Um, so just maybe curious, we could, could start. Just tell me a, a little bit about your, yourself and, and, and what you do. Right. Well, although I've got this wonderful Italian name, my mother was Patricia Claire Duffy, so I'm a classic American, half Italian, half Irish, several generations back. Um, grew up in Detroit and went to the Jesuit High School in Detroit. Um, went off for a year at Boston College with no idea what I was going to do. I did classics in high school. I was going to be a journalist. I worked on a small paper in Michigan and discovered that I was really terrible at being a journalist. I hated calling up total strangers and asking them questions that might be embarrassing. But my best friend from high school was going to school at MIT, and MIT had weekend movies and tunnels that you could explore at midnight, and the world's largest collection of science fiction. So in order to read science fiction, I uh, arranged to transfer there, wound up in the Earth and Planetary Sciences Department, where I saw the planets, I thought, oh, that's cool. That's like, you know, science fiction, right? It turns out to be geology. And I think geology, how could that be more boring than rocks? Until I discovered that there are rocks that fall out of the sky from outer space called meteorites. You can hold pieces of other planets in your hands. And that I've, I've never looked back. I've hmm. been fabulously in love with that. I did my doctoral work at the University of Arizona in what was then a brand new Department of Planetary Science. Worked for another five years as a postdoc, first at Harvard and then at MIT. And then I had one of these crises. I was, you know, 30 years old. And that Jesuit education had stuck this nasty thing called a conscience in me. So I would wake up at three in the morning wondering, you know, why am I worried about writing a paper about rocks from space when there are people starving in the world? 
and I didn't have an answer. And I didn't have an answer. And I finally gave up and said, I'm going to quit science. I'm going to do something worthwhile with my life. I'm 30. I'm still young, but not for much longer. You know, I'm going to be 70 in a couple of years. So that was how long ago that was. And I joined the US Peace Corps. And I said, I'll go wherever you want me to go and do whatever you want me to do. And they sent me to Kenya. And when I got to Kenya, of course, I'm on the equator. I'm in an area where the skies are really dark. So I, I brought a little telescope with me. And I discovered, first of all, what the Kenyans wanted from me was to teach astrophysics at the University of Nairobi, which, you know, I could have done that anywhere. But what the people in the rest of Kenya, my fellow Peace Corps volunteers, you know, I'd go visit them out in the countryside and I'd take my little telescope and everybody wanted to look through the telescope and everybody wanted to see the moon and everybody wanted to see the rings of Saturn. Have you ever seen the rings of Saturn through a little telescope? I haven't, no. Oh, you got to. And I guarantee you the first thing you're going to go do is go, wow, because everybody goes, wow, when they see the rings of Saturn in a little telescope. And naturally, the people in Kenya did that. And finally, it dawned on me that, yeah, the graduate students that I was teaching at the university would someday teach the science teachers that would teach the kids that, you know, would help develop the country. That was all very reasonable. But the real reason we're doing this is so that people have a, a chance to look at the universe and go, wow. You know, I had a cat in those days. My cat was very clever, but my cat never wanted to look through a telescope. It's only human beings who look at the stars and wonder and go, what is that? Who are they? Who am I? How do I fit here? And this is an essential part of being a human being. Dance, music, culture, all the things that are more than just putting food in your stomach, because you know, we don't live by bread alone. I, I'd read that someplace. <laughs> and that made me suddenly understand that's why we do astronomy. That's why it's so important to do astronomy. Um, I was I loved the teaching job. I went back to America, got a teaching position at a wonderful little college in Pennsylvania, Lafayette College. And I was so happy there that I thought, how can I do this full time and stand up for something more than just my own career? And at that point, I remembered the Jesuits. I thought I'd be terrible as a priest. I'm, I, you know, people come to me with their problems, and all I can think of is, of course, you got problems. You're stupid. What do you expect? This is not a good attitude for a priest. <laughs> but if you're a brother, you get to live with the Jesuit community. You get to do the work of the Jesuit community. My weakness as you know a person, person, is covered by the guys who are really good people, people. And I get to do the science and do it for a reason bigger than just my own career. So I entered the Jesuits in 1989. They sent me to the Vatican Observatory in 1993, and I've never looked back. So in all of those years, and looking through the telescope, studying what you study, do you still say wow often? Or do you find yourself, you know, kind of get jaded by it and get used to it? I've never gotten used to it. Hmm. I still have the little telescope that I brought with me to Africa. I still set it up every now and then to look at Jupiter and look at the Orion Nebula and look at double stars. Um, and I still go wow. And not only that, but just to walk outdoors and look at the same constellations that my dad taught me 60 years ago. It not only 
Um, well, let me tell you, when I was in Kenya and I was feeling terribly homesick, because as you've gathered, I'm something of a nerd. And I'm wondering, you know, what am I doing in Africa? I don't belong here. I'm incredibly homesick. I was going to say, you know, send me back, send me back. And then I realized, well, if I'm going to go back to America, I at least want to be able to see the Southern Cross, which you can see at the right time of night from the equator. And I looked up, oh, at four in the morning, it should be visible. And I go out and I looked at the Southern Cross and I said, ah, now I can go home. And I turned around and I saw in the north all of the stars that I grew up with in Michigan. And I thought, these are as beautiful, even more beautiful here. Why am I homesick when I can see the stars that I know? I'm always at home. So tell me a little bit about what the Vatican Observatory does. Take us like on a quick history lesson. And so you're not the first Jesuit to study the cosmos. By oh, any hardly, stretch. hardly. I mean, St. Ignatius in his autobiography talks about how he would love to, you know, just to look at the stars and wonder, because mm. that's what human beings do. Mm. The first time there were Jesuits involved in astronomy working for the popes were back in 1582 when they reformed the calendar and Christopher Clavius, uh, who there is a credit for on the moon, Christopher Clavius helped you know explain and work out how the new Gregorian calendar was going to work. The modern version of the observatory dates to 1891. Pope Leo XIII established it and to quote the, the document, he says, so that the people, the world can see that the church supports true science. So we've got two tasks. Number one, do good science. And number two, show the world. Those beyond that, it's however we can show the world. That's great. Whatever kind of science, as long as it's good science, that's great. So we've got basically a dozen astronomers. We come from four continents. We study everything from the cosmology of the Big Bang and you know quantum gravity to the characterization of meteors hitting the upper atmosphere of the Earth, from the incredibly big to the incredibly tiny. Incidentally, the guy who does the incredibly big is a little short Italian, and the guy who does the really tiny stuff is this huge African guy. But uh, <laughs> we basically work in the same field of astronomy as everybody else. We work in whatever fields we got our doctorates in. And that is as varied as the schools that we went to. But we all lived together as Jesuits. Uh, the observatory was given to the Jesuit order to staff back in the 1930s, because that way we could all live together in one place under one rule. And uh, the Jesuits would be responsible for finding a dozen guys who had enough astronomy that they could be astronomers. And so the observatory it is based in, in Rome, but also has a telescope in, in Tucson. Where, so where are you around the world? We have two locations. The headquarters is in the Pope's Summer Gardens out in Castel Gandolfo. And that happened in the 1930s. The city lights got so bright that they, the telescopes they used to have on the wall of the Vatican, you couldn't see anything because of all the city lights there. So they moved out to Castel Gandolfo, and that's a gorgeous place. But the city lights followed us. And by the 1980s, you couldn't do astronomy from there. At that point, the director, George Coyne, had friends at the University of Arizona. He'd worked at the University of Arizona. In fact, I had met him when I was a graduate student here. So I already knew him. He knew me. And he arranged with his friends at the university to come out here to set up a little outpost and eventually to build a telescope. So we've got a lovely, relatively small telescope, 1.8 meter mirror, but a really 
beautiful mirror. It was the first spin cast mirror, and it's got all sorts of wonderful features that most of your listeners probably aren't interested in, but I could go on for hours on why it's such a wonderful telescope. So we've got a house here in Tucson with um, a community of eight in a house in Castel Gandolfo with a community of eight. Now, they're not all members of the observatory, but most of them are. And uh, basically, we're, some of us are migratory birds. We go back and forth from the one to the other, depending on the season. So have you, have you spent any time with Pope Francis or Pope Benedict or John Paul II talking about what you do? We have. Um, I, I wouldn't claim to be on first name basis with all of them. Uh, Pope uh, John Paul II only remembered me as the guy with the red beard. Because, you know, when, but of course, in those days, we were actually living in the papal summer palace. So we would see the popes on occasion. And then even once or twice, bump into them by accident. That wasn't very often. In 2009, we moved out to much nicer quarters. It sounds great. You were living in a palace. It was a 500 year old building with bad heat, no air conditioning, and the plumbing didn't work very well. And don't ask me about the electrical plugs. So we moved to a wonderful new location in the gardens. And uh, Pope Benedict came out and visited us. And uh, Benedict, what a wonderful guy. He, people don't appreciate because he was, you know, he was a scholar, which meant he wasn't always that comfortable with big crowds. But one-on-one, -on -one, he was curious. He was fascinated with what we were doing. Of course, he was an academic. He was even, you know, very funny guy. He cracked jokes about, you know, the stuff we were doing. And, and that visit is one of the highlights. And then we've got, you know, Pope Francis, who's a fellow Jesuit. So he does know me by name, which is kind of scary when you show up and he goes, oh, guy, how are you doing? I'm going, oh, yes, your holiness. <laughs> but uh, we had a, a wonderful private audience with him about a year ago, um, now two years ago, and just Basically, everybody had a chance to chat and you know tell stories. But in addition, whenever we have a summer school or a group of scientists around for a meeting, we'll arrange to have an audience so they get to meet the Pope too. And uh, he's been very, very accommodating to the stuff we do and very supportive. So one of the ways that you're telling the world about your work is a new website and podcast um, which we can link to in, in the show notes. It's gotten some nice press coverage recently, I've seen. Um, so maybe just tell us a little bit about what, what you're trying to accomplish uh, with that website and, and why folks uh, should check it out. Yeah, well, I'm actually wearing two hats because though I'm the director of the observatory, a year before I got that gig, they made me the president of the Vatican Observatory Foundation. Now, why do we have a foundation? Well, because we had this telescope and we had to raise the money for it. And fundraising is never fun. But talking about the stuff we do is great fun. So when I became president, I decided the way we would get to people to know us is to use the foundation as a, as a means of outreach. And what could be better than to have a blog? That was back in the days when people did blogs. To have a website. Um, I happen to know a fellow who did that for a living. And he set up a wonderful website, I thought, and a wonderful blog site. And we had, you know, maybe... 400 people a day would come and read our blog, and maybe 200 would actually you know, kick in a few bucks every now and then. And that was enough to pay for itself. But 400 people in a country of, you know, 100 million Catholics, we ought to be able to reach more people than that. So we went to the John Templeton Foundation and said, you know, can we hire somebody who knows what they're doing to help us set this up? 
At the same time, we ran into an outfit called Longbeard, who do this for a living and had done it for a number of number of other Catholic institutions. Uh, Michael Cherney's work in, in refugees, they set up his website. So they said, sure, and they said, sure. Um, we've been working now for, gee, we started in the middle of the summer, so this is about eight months, just putting together this new website. I learned an awful lot about what websites should do and how they should work, and I had to unlearn a lot of things that I thought I knew. But, you know, we've had the website up for a week, and we've already tripled our, our readership just at the very beginning without even doing a lot of the, the outreach and getting, you know, we're not even to the Google search level yet. Sure. Well, I, I did see one of the exciting things for me is the, uh, there's, there's a store. You can buy a hat or a tote bag or stickers to kind of show off your Vatican Observatory, uh, you know, right. fand fandom. And, and I never knew you could do that. The, the way they sold us on having a store was to say, well, you know, public radio, you give some money and you get a tote bag. If you give money to the Vatican Observatory Foundation, we'll give you a code that gives you money off, or if it's enough money, you get the tote bag. So the store is the source of the tote bags or hats or whatever. But what the heck, since you know the, the company's producing these things, they may as well offer them for sale to other people. I had no idea that they would be popular, but it turns out they are, and, and that's great. Yeah, I'm excited to uh, to look through the uh, the list there. That's again for me because, as I was saying earlier, it is such it can be a surprise. I think when you think about Vatican Observatory, even mm -hmm. those words coming together, really kind of standing for faith and science. And yeah. you're in this world, you know there are questions. How can those things go together? Faith and science don't seem to get along. I just was seeing some something that a, a prominent scientist wrote recently uh, in the popular press that seemed to suggest that. And here we go again with the same old thing. So when, when people ask you about that, uh, when you're doing your outreach work, how do you talk about those things? How can faith and science live together in your mind? Well, the first thing is to say, here I am. They do. Um, the next is again when people are you know looking for a, a soundbite to to grab them, I I will say what my religion tells me who created the universe, my science tells me how he did it. And that means that if science is dedicated to finding the truth, number one, you have to admit you don't have the truth already. A little bit of humility goes a long way. And that goes with humility in the religion, too. We have these eternal truths that we don't understand and will never understand completely. And anybody who thinks they understand God, I don't know what God you're understanding, but it's not the real God who's infinite and never runs out of things, new things to understand. Another way to look at it is to remind people of the great scientists in the past and in the present who are deeply religious people. Um, you've got a cell phone in your pocket. And on the charger, it says so many volts, so many amps. Did you know that Mr. Voltaire and Mr. Ampere were both deeply religious, committed Catholics? And, you know, Ampere was a great friend and supporter of uh, Francis de Sales in hmm. France in the 19th century. Uh, the Big Bang Theory. Ah, how can you believe in the Big Bang Theory instead of Genesis? The Big Bang Theory was invented by a Catholic priest, Georges Lemaitre. The fellow who founded Jodrell Bank Observatory, um, uh, Bernard Lowell was a deeply religious man. The Maxwell's equations that we use, James Clerk Maxwell was a deeply religious man. The only people who seem to be atheists and are scientists are 
you know, the, the guys who are public, the guys who are trying to sell themselves. And most scientists I know either are churchgoers or at the most are agnostics. They're, they're saying we don't know. And frankly, none of us know for sure. But all of life is making choices when you don't know for sure. That's why they call it faith. You know, if there I knew are, for sure, it wouldn't take faith. There, there do sometimes I, you see like there's just so much, I don't know, we need more literacy kind of in these areas. Because I think sometimes you end up like missing each other yep. or uh, trying to like, you know, use faith in a scientific realm. And they're, they're different fields of knowledge and understanding. Yeah, or like, they, again, they, something they like creationism. Each, yeah. they, they feed each other, but they're not the same thing. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying about education is exactly right. The trouble, and I, I've run into this, it took me a while really to figure out why do people think there's a conflict? Because I've never experienced a conflict, you know. I've never had a case where my religion said one thing and my science said another. But I have had a case where my science said one thing and another piece of science said the opposite. And I'm going, these two things don't work. And that's when you get excited because you're about to learn something new and you get to publish a paper if you're lucky. But more to the point, I finally realized most people stopped learning religion when they were 12 and they stopped learning science when they were 12. And so the science you learned when you were 12 was to get the answers in the back of the book. Science is a big book of facts. And religion is a big book of facts. That's not what religion is. That's not what science is. Any more than music is playing scales. You know, music is performing a piece of work that's different every time you do it from every person who does it. And science is the same way. Where the religion fits in is the question of why am I doing the science? If I'm doing it for my own career, for my own, you know, to to make money, boy, did you get in the wrong field. Or, you know, to attract girls, boy, did you get in the wrong field. But if you're doing it because you are in love with the universe and you are in love with the truth, what could be more religious than that? Love and truth. One uh, way of thinking about those things together, which I don't know if this analogy works for you and you can maybe help me, uh, is like thinking about like a a pot of water boiling on the stove. You know, you could ask like, why does this water boil? And you could get into how things are, you know, molecules are heated up and moving all around. And uh, you could get into like the scientific description of that. But then also you could say, well, you know, I put the kettle on the stove, right? I put the kettle, there's someone who put the kettle on the stove. There are different answers to- Uh, Different ways of answering questions. Because you're asking different types of questions, and they're both true. Right. Um, Another example that we've used is uh, if you've ever been to, you know, seen any of Surratt's wonderful paintings like, you know, Sunday in the Park, and you realize that the picture from a distance is this glorious painted picture, but when you look close up, it's little dots. What is on the canvas? Lots of little dots of color or an image of people enjoying a Sunday in the park. And both are true answers. Sure. So I'm thinking about, you said before you haven't gotten used to it, you are still filled with wonder. It does seem to me that like in terms of, I don't know if it's like re-enchanting people, like we talk about how faith is declining in a lot of parts of the world, but it seems like when we can get back to the sense of awe and wonder, that could be a way to to kind of kickstart faith that we're swimming in miraculous all around us. And I'm curious for you again, mentioning that you still are amazed. What are some of the the facts or stories that you share with groups about things that really continue to just blow your mind uh, when you see them or think about them? Well, 
let's start with reintroducing that sense of awe. One of the things that does it is to just look at the stars, but that's harder and harder for people to do because of light pollution. And Pope Francis, uh, no, Pope Benedict, Pope Benedict back at a, a Holy Sunday, Holy Saturday um, homily that he gave, you know, the Holy Saturday uh, liturgy is all about light and dark and candles. And it doesn't have the same power when we can, you know, turn on the lights and, you know, light is something you take for granted. But he points out that light pollution blots out God's stars the way that sin blots out God's voice with our own noise. Light pollution is a fundamental kind of sin because it's substituting God's light with our own light. That said, to be able to get to a place where the sky is dark and there are fewer and fewer of those places, um, not to mention how wasteful most of that light is and it actually makes places more dangerous when you're, they're overlit, but that's a whole different argument. A couple of things that were incredibly memorable to me. Um, about six or seven years ago, I was invited to go to a star party in the panhandle of Oklahoma. You know, six hours from Abilene, Texas, six hours from Albuquerque in the middle of nowhere. The Milky Way was so bright that it cast a shadow. Most people today have never even seen the Milky Way because of this terrible light pollution. They, we've cut ourselves off from the sense of having awe. Another thing, um, 25 years ago, I had a chance to go to Antarctica, and that was a whole experience of itself. But then coming back, I had that same little telescope I'd taken to Africa, and I set it up to look at objects in the Southern Hemisphere that I had never seen before, starting with the Milky Way, the, the, the Milky Way in the Southern Hemisphere and the Southern Cross, but also nebulae that I had only heard about, or in some cases had not heard about, but turn out to be famous for the people who live down there. And you see wisps of color that just, the longer you look, the more you see mixing and swirling together in a way that leaves you breathless. And 25 years later, I still remember it was so profound. Um, there are also little things like, you know, the data I actually take in my lab and what it plotted up and, oh my gosh, this thing plotted against that thing gives me a line. Who knew that they were related to each other? Now there's me and four of the people in the world who get excited about it, but we do get excited about it because it's a tiny piece of truth that helps give us a deeper insight into how the universe works. One of the, the uh, I read an essay recently by the, the great Jesuit writer, Walter Burkhart, who talks about contemplation as a, a long, loving look at the real. I don't know if you've heard that, that definition. I'm uh, just curious for you, uh, doing those things, like looking at those things and taking time to look and to let yourself be amazed. Does that become prayer for you ever? Do you see those things uh, connected, your, that observation, uh, and then uh, you're kind of noticing God at work in the universe? Always. Always. You know, everybody knows the world is round, except for people who are trying to be smart Alex and think that, ah, oh, the world is flat, prove it isn't, which don't get me started, I can. But to be perfectly honest, most people live in a flat world where they are at the center and the important other objects is, you know, the distance between me and the refrigerator, the distance between me and the television, 
we wrap ourselves in cotton so that we don't feel pain. And we get mad at people if, by golly, we're, we're inconvenienced because, oh my gosh, there's a pandemic going on, or oh my gosh, I hurt myself, or oh my gosh, I'm sick. How dare the world mean tell me that I'm going to have to die someday? Um, you know, but living in Africa, suddenly you're living without the cotton around you. And you discover that you're much more alive then. And God is much closer to the surface then. This sense of trying to surround ourselves with comfort and push away the things that we are afraid of, whether it's, you know, living in a neighborhood where everybody looks like me so I don't have to think about other people, to going to only a church or reading only a newspaper or watching only a television with people who agree with me. Either way. Um, instead, God is found precisely in the places that make you a little bit uncomfortable. And that also has the ability to surprise you and invoke awe. There are people who are scared to look at the sky. There are people who are afraid to look at astronomical images because it does make them upset. They don't want to be filled with awe. To which all I can say is, oh, what you're missing. There was that, that quote, I forget for which astronaut this was, but who had like looked back at the Earth from space, you know, one of the handful of people who had and said, like, this makes you want to grab a politician by the scruff of the neck and pull him out there just to be like, look at this. And like you get caught up in your petty things and you can just like look at this and then maybe we could solve uh, some of our problems if we took a perspective like that. Um, yeah. So do um, yeah. So what how do you then encourage people to in a world that like makes it maybe difficult to to get out and to look at the stars or we're distracted by uh, artificial light on our screens or uh, just, you know, have other things to do? Are there like practices that you encourage people uh, to do? Are there ways to kind of get into this for someone who might be new? There are. And the simplest one is something I do with high school kids. Um, for the last six years or so, I've been teaching an online high school class for something called the Arupe Virtual Learning Institute, um, basically sets up online classes, enrichment classes for high school kids around the country. And they get high school credit for it, and you know, it looks good in that for applying to college. I teach an astronomy class, and one of the things I have the kids do is every week they've got to go out and find the moon. I don't care how light polluted your city is, you can see the moon. How many people pay attention to the moon? Do you know right now what the phase of the moon is? No. Of course not. And um, it's just one of those things you never bother to look up, but simply the act of going out at night, looking up and seeing the moon, or even in the morning after sunrise, you suddenly notice, oh, the moon's still in the sky. How many people know that sometimes you can see the moon in the daytime sky? But making it a practice every night um, here in Tucson, it's easy. And, you know, Southern California, it's likewise. You can go outside and the weather's nice. Um, in our community, the, the kitchen is in one building and my bedroom is in a different community building. So I actually am outside, you know, after dinner to go outside and spend the moment to look up and find the moon and see how it has changed in its appearance and its position from night to night to night connects you with a world that's bigger than, you know, the things that are making you worried right now. I remember after 9-11 and, you know, the world's felt like, oh my gosh, it's all ended and it's terrible and, and, you know, the world is full of tragedy to look at the stars and go, well, you know, 
Galileo saw those stars. Jesus Christ saw those stars. The world is bigger than my little petty worries of today. Hmm. I am I am curious about so again the exploration that we're doing, the learning that we're doing. Um, right now, obviously, the biggest space story in the news has been around the, the mission to Mars. And somehow, like, again, the fact that humans could figure out how to land the, that rover on Mars. And the, the, I saw, like, the animation of how they use parachutes and all kinds of different ways. It's just, you know, really unbelievable. And they're talking again about uh, maybe sending people to the moon uh, is, is in the works. Um, sometimes, again, you hear people, a criticism of, of these things like this would be, this is, we're spending so much money. It even sounded like in your own life, maybe you had a, a little bit of that wonder. We had that uh, crisis at one yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Like, why why do we do this? Mm-hmm. Why do we g- keep going out, out there doing these things? It's nice to learn things, but shouldn't we first make sure everyone has you know enough food to eat so yeah what what is your response uh to to criticisms like that why do we want to make sure that people have enough food to eat this is not a rhetorical question this is a real question when we work with the poor which we want to do which we need to do which we have to do which our lord has instructed us no uncertain terms to do but what's the goal is it to make poor people rich then they become the sinners and, you know, all the, give us all the problems. No, that's not what the point is. The point is to give people enough comfort and free time that they can then feed their souls. Feeding your stomach is not the goal. It's the means to a greater goal. Um, the, the creation story in Genesis has exactly this at its point, because you can compare it to the the Babylonian creation story. It's the same science. Whoever was writing Genesis used the best science of its day, which is Babylonian science. But the point of the Babylonian story was the creation of Babylon. The end point of the Genesis creation story, the seventh day, is the day of rest. That is key. That makes the entire rest of the week have a reason, have a point. And that looking at the universe and contemplating it and seeing that it was good, that is why we were created. Because otherwise, if all we do is feed the poor and, and you know help the hungry and help the sick, we eventually ourselves will become poor and sick and hungry because we will have lost sight of what it is we're doing this for. Hmm. You mentioned you know that that story of being able to bring uh, the telescope to communities and uh, that people there is that kind of innate human desire or that uh, predisposition to awe that we can can cultivate and it seems that it that's something that cuts across socioeconomics or cuts across cultures and so that's and, been your experience and absolutely but it's more than that because another thing we do is we've got a summer school we try to do every two years COVID goofed that up but we'll. Uh, we'll be able to open it again in 2023, where we bring in 25 graduate students, academics who are gonna be professional astronomers, most of them from the developing world. And this means that just because you were brought up in South America doesn't mean you can't be a professional astronomer, that you can't aspire to be a professional astronomer, that you can't go back to your university and say, I've worked with the greatest minds in astronomy, and guess what? They think I'm one of the greatest minds, because this is something that all of us can do. That's why it's important that we have 
you know, Asians and Africans as well as Europeans and Americans at the Vatican Observatory. That's why we want to be, a, you know, one of the things I saw in Kenya was that lack of confidence. Ah, all the good stuff is happening in Europe. Well, no, good stuff is happening in Africa too, and you can be part of that. And in fact, if that's what you're called to do, we are, you know, we have a responsibility to make sure that you can do that. And then talk to the people of your home in the words and the culture that they will understand. Hmm. The, um, you, when you mentioned earlier, when, when just briefly ago, talking about um, the creation story and, and thinking again about ways to in, you know invite people into that kind of reflection, um, I'm just wondering about even about scripture for you. There, there are a lot of references to the the heavens in, in scripture. Are there any passages for you that um, when you come to, or are some favorites uh, that really end up connecting your, your parts of your life together? Well. The one that I use a lot because most people are familiar with it is Psalm 8, where people say, you know, the world of the universe is so big and I'm so tiny. How can God notice me? As if this was something that came out of modern science. And the psalmist in Psalm 8 says exactly the same thing 2,500 years ago. They knew how big the universe was. And this is not a reason to disbelieve in God. This is a reason to recognize how incredibly big God is, that Dinky as I am, God can focus all of his attention on me and on you and on that person down the street who drives me nuts. So that, that sense is important. Um, Psalm 139, which every Jesuit knows because we use it in retreats all the time. I remember that, you know, no matter how far away I go, there you are. And I was thinking of that a lot when I was in Antarctica collecting meteorites. But I'll tell you the one, one bit of scripture that I always go back to is this little bit in the prophet Baruch, where he talks about how the stars shouted with joy to their creator. And that's something that I think is essential to astronomy. It is a source not only of knowledge and hopefully not of the arrogance, aha, I understand it. It's actually quite the opposite. You go, geez, I thought I understood this and it turns out to be all the more complicated. But it's a source of joy. It, it, it makes you want to shout for joy, just shouting and singing along with the stars, whom God knows and calls everyone by name. Well, Brother Guy, I, uh, I'm ready to shout for joy myself. This has been a really energizing conversation. I'm excited to, to go out and look up tonight, see if I can notice uh, where the moon is. Uh, Think about Jesus and St. Ignatius looking at, at that same moon. So, yeah, thank you for your sense of wonder and awe and for your scholarship and, uh, yeah, for all you're doing and uh, all the best. Thank you. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at Jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at WeAreTheJesuits, and facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org slash weekly.
If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>